Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 214, Kickstarting in 2019. Presented by Chandler Copenhaver, Steve Segedy, and Christopher Bartolis. Talking about Kickstarter. Let's see if these, let's see if these mics work. Yeah. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, this is Kickstarter in 2019. Um, if you were in, I was in an earlier panel and we had a Q&A format. I think we're going to be doing something similar this oh, time. Yeah. So we're going to introduce ourselves and ask you for things that you're interested in because this is a very broad topic and any of us could probably talk about our experience with it uh, for a whole hour. <laughs> so we want to know what you want to know. Um, we're assuming that you're coming at this as game creators who are looking to start a project, either a board game or a role-playing game or something like that, and we'll tell you what we can. Sound good? Okay, well, I'm Steve Segetti. Uh, I work with Bully Pulpit Games. We've been publishing role-playing games for about 12 years. Uh, we've run five Kickstarters, six Kickstarters. Anyway, um, the most recent one was called Starcrossed. Our flagship game is called Fiasco, which we have not yet done a Kickstarter for, but we're aiming to do one in the spring. All right, I'm Chris Batarlis from Everything Epic, and uh, we have done over 14 Kickstarters. We have 15th coming up on Tuesday. Uh, our first game was Secrets of the Lost Tomb, and we've actually done games off of Kickstarter as well, like Big Trouble in Little China, the game. So um, I'm happy to answer any kind of questions about miniatures, board games, narrative board games, thea- uh, thematic games, uh, any kind of games um, on and off of Kickstarter. So we've done a lot of, a lot of fun games. So Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Chandler Copenhaver. Um, I have been an avid backer and a game player like you guys um, since 2012 is when I first started on the Kickstarter world. And uh, since then I've worked in the industry. I've worked with Kickstarter creators. We were, I've worked with probably close to a thousand. I'm right around that number now. Um, primarily helping consult and work with a lot of those creators. And now more recently, about the last two years, um, with CrowdOx. And so we're a pledge management service that helps a campaign after their project is over to kind of help navigate those rather challenging waters. Kind of the, the unsexy part of crowdfunding is a good way to look at it. So that's, uh, that's what, what I do. <clears throat> so why don't we start off and see if any of you want to tell us what you want to know. What ideas, what questions do you have about Kickstarter? That little movie in the beginning that everyone puts up for their money, <clears throat> how important is that? How important is it to come up with a good creative movie? Required. I would say if you want to be successful, it would be, you have to have a video, it's my, my opinion. I was in a uh, marketing talk earlier this morning uh, where some smart people said uh, that something like only 20% of the people who come to your page actually watch your video, so it seems like, why should I bother? Um, <clears throat> but the reality is that you'll make, I think they said, three times more money on average if you have a video. And the reasoning was, it makes you look more professional. It makes it look like you know what you're doing and you're ready to actually produce this product. Even when we don't. <clears throat> Even when you're not? <clears throat> well. well, I think that that's, that's kind of a <clears throat> semi-point of it, right? You don't have to have the most professional $10,000 polished video to have a video. You can make a personal outreach to your, to your public by being you on a video saying, hey guys, how's it going? Here's my game, okay? 
this is my first game, but it's gonna be a great game. And you tell them about your game and you, you relate with them as a person. And people will sometimes back you just because you did that, because you look like one of them. You're just, just another person with an awesome game. And that's part of Kickstarter. That's what really kind of started Kickstarter in the beginning. It's very different now. And in 2019, it may be very different again. So, but that, that personal touch, that always, I think, will be a part of what people like about Kickstarter. Did you have one? A follow-up question. So, uh, I read an article, of course, online, which makes it gospel. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They talked about people watching to the end of your video and you got some kind of points in the Kickstarter system. Um, they also talked about uh, comments, the number of comments in the comment section, getting you some kind of you're all looking at me like I'm crazy, so I'm now thinking not nope. as gospel as I thought. No, no. Yeah. What are the points he's talking about? It's, it's, a, it's all about the Kickstarter algorithm that pushes your project higher than others when people search for it. But I don't know if people watching to the end of your video is, is part of that specifically. I think it has a lot to do with traffic to your actual page, people who comment on your page, people who, who like are sharing your page. There's a lot of little things that Kickstarter is picking up in the background that change. They, they're, they're constantly tweaking this. So it's like almost impossible for, I think, Kickstarter creators to fully understand what this little trick is. People try to cheat it all the time, finding ways to get more and more hits on your Kickstarter page so that you come up higher. Just having a project we like or we love, those, you know, uh, I've out of 14 Kickstarter campaigns, uh, many of them very successful. We haven't had one project we love yet. Um, Kickstarter doesn't love our projects, but we have a lot of backers who do. So honestly, sometimes that stuff is a bunch of malarkey. So don't don't let yourself be held back by the algorithm stuff. Just try to get as many people to your page as possible, and that'll that'll drive you higher. Yeah. So one of the things. So you're kind of talking about there's a in Kickstarter you can see how many page or how many video views that you've had. Um, and, and then there's a percentage of completion. And so on, on average, and averages are horribly skewed, so they're not, they're not worth a lot, but on average, 30% completion is, is pretty common to see about 30% to go through all of your video, right? But that's also very not helpful because you had a six minute video or one guy's got a one and a half minute or 30 second video, right? So it's really relative. And then that kind of goes back to the original point and what Chris was talking about, that, that you have this uh, scenario where your video could be, you have some people that do a video that is just, it's thematic, right? It's, it's a story and they're, they're doing nothing about gameplay, right? You have some videos that are just that. And then you have others that are just gameplay, but don't talk any, you know, they're not pretty and they don't have like the flowing, you know, uh, graphics and everything. So you have such variation that it's really hard to create a standard. What you need to do is figure out for your specific game, but not only your game, for your audience, what is it, how are you gonna most effectively connect with them? Because that's the most important thing. And so if you create a video that's, hey, and it's me, and you know, you're trying, you're just engaging with your audience, that could be useful. But again, go, go look at, you know, 10 Kickstarter campaigns. And as you look at them, see what, what dots are being connected. What do you most pay attention to? Um, I know for me, I watch a video, usually I watch the first 30 seconds to a minute at the most. I don't usually sit there and you know, fixate on the video for the whole thing. I usually watch the first 30 seconds and then start scrolling the page. How much is this thing? Where are the gameplay pictures? Where are the game, gameplay videos? And I go for, those are the things that really draw me in because I, if it's just a video that's kind of like a small anime basically for the game, 
that might not drive me to the purchase. I want to know how does it play. I want to know more of those details. And so uh, you, you have to pay attention to the fact that there's usually like five important videos on most tabletop board game pages, and they're very different. One is talking about you know all of the playtesters' experiences. One of them is usually gameplay. Another one is usually a reviewer that has put up a video or, you know, that you've asked for as a creator. Um, so there's lots of different types of videos uh, for the board game industry. That, that first video, as, as he's suggesting, shouldn't be very long because they're not going to watch the whole thing. Keep it short, keep it to the point. Within the first 15 seconds, you want to be saying, hi, this is who I am, this is what my game is, please go buy it. And then you can talk more after that, but you want to get up front the point of why the video is there. And you can, again, have more videos down the page. And I would add to that, we used to, there was a point where we saw a lot of these, like, frontal, like, I, you're talking to the creator, we're, we're, you're, you know, learning about me. But to be honest, most consumers don't care about you. Like, they do, and it's very important. But they want to be sold on the product first. As soon as they're sold on the product, then they want to know that this is a reputable person. They want to know the details about the team that's involved. But typically speaking, I want to be sold on that game. I want to know that that's something I'm interested in first, and then I get to that building rapport with the actual like creation. There, there are scenarios where it's the opposite. There are scenarios where it's like, oh, he, he, these guys were involved with the game, I'll buy it, right? Like, you know, that's an instant purchase kind of a thing, but you do have both sides. And there's the strange middle ground that has to do with theme, where sometimes it's yeah. about the sales pitch. Oh, buy this game because it has 40,000 miniatures and it's a great price. Buy this game because it's this really creepy, cool new theme that you love. Buy this game because it has this amazing mechanic. What's so special about your game? That's what you want to tell them in that video as quickly as possible and make it quick and, and fun and fast so they're, they're drawn in by that. And remember, most people who go on <coughs> Kickstarter at work or somewhere else, not sitting at home just scrolling through Kickstarter most of the time. They're usually not necessarily able to watch the video with sound on, super loud, full screen. They're not going to see every single little part of it because they're doing this, you know, in their quick free time at lunch or, you know, in, on the subway or wherever they are. And they're just like scrolling around. Oh, my friend backed this thing. They click it. Now we're going to look at it. We'll play the video. Oh, that looks really cool. I got to watch that when I get home. Yeah. Kickstarter has some pretty useful tools for subtitles for your videos. Um, you can go in and type out everything that you're saying so that when they're watching it on their phone on the subway, they can still see what you're saying. There's a lot of people that'll make, they'll <laughs> only make a pledge on a, on a computer. There are some people that just will never pledge on their phone, but they usually see it first on their phone. Mm -hmm. And it's a very common kind of path that we that you see. Oh, did you? Yeah, we yeah. Um, do, crowd, do uh, services like <coughs> CrowdOx and Backer, do they provide any kind of value for campaigns that don't have a lot of um, you know, add-ons or customization or things that you would do post you know, campaign? What kind of value do you mean? Like, like to the... Like helping you acquire or think of ideas or like I mean, like what kind of products do they provide? I understand, you know, if you have a lot of add-ons or customization, then they're useful <coughs> because Kickstarter doesn't so if your campaign is more simple, and I think that's your question, right? If my campaign is a rather simple, basic card game, what, what value does a pledge management tool have, right? Um, with CrowdOx, what we've seen is that we've worked with a lot of people that have very basic, basic campaigns. Um, sometimes selling additional units is somewhat common. But probably more common, the more valuable aspect isn't necessarily more revenue, but it's actually managing all of that. 
right? So you have 400 orders, and now you need to figure out and manage all of those shipping addresses, and, and you need to coordinate that so that you can provide it to Quartermaster Logistics or whatever, you know, whatever company you're gonna ship with. That's the primary value. The secondary value is being able to offer those add-ons and upsells. Um, I would, you know, if, if that's something of interest, because most campaigns do raise some extra money through that, I would kind of plan in advance, what could we offer as an add-on or upgrade? Could we give metal coins, which seems to be rather common, right? Can I have metal coins be an offered as an add-on? Um, I would say, though, that, that pre-orders is kind of a big deal, too. Being able to have a place for people to go because uh, that Kickstarter ends, you should still continue to take in additional orders. And so that's another value that they can provide you as well. I'll say a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. I've done Backer Kit. I've done Pledge Manager. I've done Just Straight Kickstarter. I've also spoken with this nice gentleman here about theirs. They're very, very similar in what they do. It's all about the service that's there to help you. If you're a very new creator, having one of these services can help you a lot to make sure that you stay organized. They're like a team that help make sure that your stuff doesn't get all confused and messed up in the background. You got hundreds or thousands backers maybe, and oh my God, what do I do? They can help you organize that information, help you find fulfillment centers, help you figure out some of that stuff, basically as part of their service. Now let's just say you have a simple thing. You sold a hundred things. You, don't, you can't really afford to pay another service. You can just use Kickstarters, Pledge Manager. It's, it's simple. You'll get a simple spreadsheet. You can send that to a shipping company and have them ship your stuff. You can ship it yourself using that pretty simply. You can, of course, Start a simple online store on Wix.com, Shopify.com, however you want and sell your own stuff after too. Let's say you don't have a giant campaign. You can't afford to spend the extra money on it. That's okay too. There's many, many ways to do a similar thing. It's just about how much work do you want to put in? How much do you want to do the research? How much extra stuff or time do you have to do that? How confident are you in it? If you pick one of those services, make sure they're the one that has the service that you need that helps to support you as a creator. That's the best value that they're going to give you. All different, but they usually have a price per backer and then a fee that they charge you across whatever your particular funding goal is potentially, and then they'll charge you a percentage on the sales that they make for you. Think about how Amazon charges you a charge or, kick, or um, uh, Kickstarter charges you a charge or eBay. They're going to charge you a small percentage, kind of like their finder's fee for helping you push that product. Go ahead on the right there. Well, I think one of the things that we mentioned earlier is that um, Kickstarter has changed. Its original vision, what people used it for originally, was much more creator-driven. Uh, one, one person trying to get a thing out. And now it's generally much more high-end and professional. Both things still exist, uh, but people come to Kickstarter with different purposes in mind, both as creators and as, as backers. Um, and, and Kickstarter is constantly evolving its tools to try and keep up with that, with those sorts of changes. So we're talking about using after the after the fact services like Backerkit and so forth, because Kickstarter's tools for that end result are not great. Their surveys are not great. The spreadsheet they give you is not great. Um, <clears throat> so it's right not. now, <laughs> lots of other services have come up that, to fill that gap. I don't know if Kickstarter is going to continue to try and get that money back by providing those services, but they might. Um, 
they every time I've done a campaign, there's something new about the interface. Uh, you know, I come to it with feeling like I'm an ex expert and I know how this all works, and then I'm like, oh, oh, that's they different. just updated it recently. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you saw it, but they just changed it. So it's like they're constantly slowly adding mm -hmm. and, and and slowly upgrading, but it's just a slow process for them. I mean, they make a lot of money, but one example is I started a campaign, and then within like two days, they changed the way that the shipping options work, so that you could actually differentiate shipping amounts based on location, so that you could say it's five dollars if you're in the U.S. and ten dollars if you're in Canada and fifteen anywhere else. They only added that relatively recently, and it was like after I had already set up my campaign. So, of course, that was a little, was a little frustrating that you don't see that roadmap coming. Now, on that, just that note, that's a really important thing. He just mentioned prices per pledge for shipping and locations. I'm going to just talk about this because I think it's one of the most important, biggest pitfalls that you can make as a project creator is shipping prices. Yeah. You have to make sure your shipping prices are accurate. When people and, and backers rush you to create a pledge manager so they can pay for their shipping and do their things, don't allow anybody to rush you. Be very kind and polite to the backer, but don't let them push you into something that you're not ready to do. Make sure your shipping prices are 100% accurate or you just lose money. You can put yourself in the, in the hole, you can become bankrupt, you can lose your company if your shipping prices are wrong. You ship out 2,000 products and you're, 2, 000, uh, let's say, $2 lower, you're gonna spend 2,000 times two on all those orders, basically, and sometimes more depending on the location, um, basically just because of a simple error, a simple mistake. Make sure your shipping prices are 100% correct before you charge the backer. 99% of the time when I do a, a Kickstarter campaign, I will charge the backer in the, in the post campaign, mm -hmm. in the actual pledge manager, whatever the pledge manager may be. It's, it? it's simple to do, but you can calculate what your product weighs, its size, you can calculate everything, get the exact 100% shipping quote before you ever charge them. This way you're not overcharging them, which they hate, and you're not undercharging them, which you're going to hate yeah. really, really badly. Would you give them a the range? Yes, that's what we do. I give them a range. I'll say this is going to be approximately $10 to $12, um, most likely around there. Shipping prices can all of a sudden raise, too. Yeah. All of a sudden, FedEx, by next year, 2019, shipping prices are going to raise. Yeah. 2 year, to 3%. They're going to go up. And it's not uncommon for that to happen in the middle of your campaign. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and you find, especially if you're, if you're manufacturing, timing <clears throat> usually, like the average is probably around like five to six months for a lot of these games. Sometimes a lot more, sometimes less, but in the, in the time frame that you're going to ship, it will change. Like just bet on it changing. And so that's one of the benefits of charging shipping post-campaign, which tabletop creators, we, it seems like they were higher percentage now. I mean, 60-70% of creators that are doing tabletop games do charge shipping post campaign after, like through CrowdOx or Pledge Manager. All the cool mini or not campaigns do it. There's a reason they do that. They do that for safety reasons. They have thousands and thousands of backers. A couple dollars off, and they're losing thousands and thousands of dollars. It's in the garbage. It's it's it can be. It's where most projects do lose money. That's actually the the main place that a creator will lose money because usually you have manufacturing pretty well nailed down, and you're usually figuring those things out. Um, but yeah, don't lose money on shipping. Uh, it's, it's a horrible place to lose. Now, there's a lot of people that that ask, oh, what, how do, what my, what's my next step? And my suggestion would be to contact a couple of the companies that do it. There are numerous uh, companies that serve the tabletop community specifically, which is super cool, um, and then fulfill Kickstarter campaigns. Um, I already mentioned Quartermaster Logistics as one. I know that they do a great job. They're really good. I use them. Yeah, they do a really well, really good job. Um, there's and I've used a lot others. of bad ones. 
Um, when we're talking about shipping, just something to consider as well. If you're gonna ship, I, a lot of people that I talk to do this internationally. If you're gonna ship internationally, try not to do it from your house. Try not to ship everything from China to your house and then ship everything worldwide because you'll end up paying a lot more. For example, the UK. Hopefully you have at least you know, 10 to 20% of your backers um, from the UK. It seems to be somewhat common. And uh, you, you could just ship a whole pallet directly to somewhere in the UK. Like Spiral Galaxy Games, for yep. instance. They do fulfillment in the UK and they're <clears throat> excellent. And they fulfill throughout all of EU. So you can ship yep. all of your EU stuff directly to Spiral Galaxy Games and they'll forward your stuff and out. they'll take care of the VAT for you and figure out the logistics of dealing with all the horrible tax related items that are that are involved in the U European Union. And then if you send them some extras and you go to UK Games Expo or Essen, the big, big game conventions out there, you can have them send you some games there and you don't have to send them from the US and deal with all that. So there's a lot of little bonuses and little tricks to be able to help yourself in the uh, EU. Games Quest is another one in the UK. That's, that's another good one. That's who we're using for our current game. Or Happy Shops. That's in uh, Germany. Yeah. Uh, so to expand on his question, um, looking at previous years to this year coming, talking, <clears throat> talking more specifically about trends like, for instance, the videos, the way the campaign's formatted, the pricing structure of your various tiers of rewards. Um, do you see anything that people were doing that they're moving away from or stuff that people are starting to do that are going to become more popular when it comes to how you're structuring and selling your campaign? I'm not sure their experiences, but for example, pledge level structure, it's getting more simplified. And on average, most campaigns are ten, tend to kind of have less pledge levels now than it used to be. It used to have all sorts of early birds and other things, and that's usually gone away with uh, for the most part. And so simplification of pledge levels, having reviews, um, paid for reviews, reviewers that actually uh, review your game. It has become pretty much vital um, to have that on your page, at least at least one or two decent ones. Um, and again, paid is kind of the keyword. We talked a little bit about video to go back to that really quick. Um, I would spend money on a video, but I wouldn't spend crazy money on a video. Um, or be creative. I, the, probably my favorite suggestion is to go to a university campus and find some kid that you that has some talent that's trying to build a portfolio and that you're going to help him by helping you know having him be involved and or her and be able to uh, you know engage a community again kind of whole crowdfunding thing is about community engage your your community to to put this thing together and you know pay people where you where you can and where you can afford to um, but it's it's worth the investment in most cases and most of the successful campaigns you're seeing that blow up or that you're like, wow, if only I could do something even half as good as that, they've typically put it up some upfront risk and investment with you know, paying, paying money. And, and again, there's a, there's a, a spectrum of things here. Um, you can have a relatively small campaign that doesn't require reviewers. You don't have to pay a reviewer because in your community of people that you've built up for your game, you're going to have some designers, people here at Metatopia that play tested it here, and they're like, this is the best game ever. And they say that on Twitter, and that's something you can put on your Kickstarter page. That helps. But also, for 2019, I think one of the biggest things you have to think about as a new creator, if it's your first thing, you have to set your expectations. You have to know what you're making and set your expectations. You're not going to be Kingdom Death Monster. I'm very sorry to break this to you, but $12 million is not coming. 
I'm, I'm very sorry. You unless, a million dollars. Unless you have a million dollars to invest and you're going to make this thing look like Kingdom Death Monster times two, then you have to really set your expectations to know what you're making, understand that your funding level may not make you money in the pocket, and realize that you're going to take that product and you're going to make it into something. Also realize that in 2019 especially, um, you should probably consider, am I going to become a game publisher? <clears throat> am I making a game just to make one game because this is my dream to make this one game that I really want to make. I, just, I really want to have somebody help me make a few copies of this game and get this out there. Do I want to make money off of this? Is this going to be my living? Because if it is, you need to really consider that this is going to be a full-time business for you mm -hmm. and that it takes years to build and that you're not going to become a, a superstar Kingdom Death Monster uh, or uh, exploding kittens overnight. It doesn't happen that way. These guys, those folks who worked on those projects had big investment, big investors, a lot of money went into it, a lot of time went into it. They already had fame behind them. They had a lot of things going for them right from the beginning that helped get them hundreds of thousands backers basically for something like Exploding Kittens. Those are, those are crazy astronomical um, big things. Cool many or not, those guys have big investors that are behind them. You know, they make millions of dollars. If they don't make millions of dollars, they're not making money. They're in trouble for that project because they put tons of money into those things. You have to think from the beginning, what's your expectation? What are you trying to do? If you have an awesome game, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do a Kickstarter. Maybe you should pitch it to a publisher who already has that backing and that can make that game even bigger for you. <clears throat> And you just can design games and have fun. Because being a Kickstarter creator is like running your own business, at least for that one Kickstarter. Especially in 2019, you have to be ready to be all of those hats and all of those roles in that business. Marketing, business, legal, game designer, game fulfillment agent, game salesperson, distribution agent. Is your game going to go to retail? Are you going to have try to have this sold in stores or are you going to just do this yourself? Is it just going to be a direct to the consumer game or are you going to sell it to big game distributors? How are you going to do that? What's your plan? You have to set those types of expectations. Figure out what, what's your real plan. What do you want to do with this game? This, this priceless artifact that you've been working on for the last 10 years, what are you going to do with it? What do you want to be? What are you prepared to do? Yeah. Stretch goals. How important are they to make fun and make people interested in them? And, I mean, does that add to the sales? Does it? Do, do people just not even bother looking at it? They become a sad Kickstarter expectation mm -hmm. that I tried to get rid of in one of my campaigns. The backers didn't like that. I had to go back and I made the campaign over again. I redid the campaign with stretch goals, and it was three times as popular and did three times as well. With stretch, goals. with stretch goals. Stretch goals are an interesting thing because some of the stretch goals that uh, established, especially established creators have are really what they intended to have in the game anyway, right? So there are a percentage, and especially the lower ones, that you potentially, I mean, if it, it's, a, it's a big debate amongst, actually, amongst people uh, that whether or not, not, not whether or not you have them because pretty much most of the big ones you have to have, to have them, have them. otherwise people look at your, your campaign funny yeah. what's so special about this improved improved components there are a couple uh, there are a couple of ways to look at it I think one of them is uh, it's something it, when you're in the middle of the Kickstarter it's a very stressful time for you as the person running it as a creator because you're like you're you're checking every five minutes, watching the numbers go up, and you're like, "What do I do? I do something new?" Oh, two numbers went down. I lost two backers. And, and it, it climbs and what it levels do? off, and you're like, "Oh crap! What do I do? Uh, uh, quick, let's add a stretch goal." 
don't do that. Yeah, no. Like, don't plan everything ahead of time and don't cave into that pressure because you're going to end up committing yourself to this crazy stretch wheel or stretch goal wheel of pain that is not going to serve you well. Um, so stretch goals are something that you're going to get pressure to do it, but you wouldn't, shouldn't be looking to do a stretch goal for something that you wouldn't already want to do in the same days before the Kickstarter began. If that was something that serves your game and makes your game better or is going to make you happier to create, it can be a thing that you've, you've considered, well, that would be awesome if I could do this supplement, but maybe there's not an audience for that. The Kickstarter is there to tell you if there's an audience. It, Stretch goals. There's things that I want to do with my game, but it's, you know, I need the money to do it. And it's like the stretch goals looks like the only way I'm going to be able to get better art for my game or more art. You have to consider the the money though, right? How much money is that going to cost? And is it going to leave you with enough extra to be able to properly create the game and maybe leave a little extra for problems? Are you going going to put yourself into the red? Yeah, is it... Is it going to cost three, four months? Is it going to, who knows? Time is a huge aspect of this too. You, yeah. I have people that they'll offer a stretch goal. They don't, they underestimate it. And it actually is what crushes the delivery time frame. Yes. They're back three extra months later than they expected. That's a lot of grumpy people. So you have to kind of find that balance. For example, solo mode it seems to be a very common stretch goal now. It's now like once we hit 120,000, we're going to offer a solo mode. And maybe that's a good option for you. Maybe you already have that designed. You've kind of figured out the majority of that. Um, it's, it's kind of, there's strategy. All of it is really just strategy and how it's displayed. Because you look at a lot of the popular, uh, popular titles or bigger publishers, they tend to have you know 15 to 20 stretch goals pre-planned. They know the numbers, right? They know the numbers. So if I hit this number, it makes sense for us to add the heavier metal dice, which is going to change the shipping costs and it's going to change, you know, the amount of space that it takes in the box. Like there's a lot that you have to pre-think and not just kind of, you know, haphazardly throw it onto the page. You got to compare and contrast. You got to think it all out first, you know. You definitely do. Compare to the big campaigns, though. Look at a small campaign and regular people stretch goals and then compare to Cool Mini or not. Look at the amount of money between stretch goals. The amount of backers they get and the amount of money their games cost fill up sometimes $30,000, $60,000 between stretch goals. It's a whole campaign for one stretch goal. Yeah. And they're giving you like a free miniature. You know, that's costing them, you know, not a lot of money in that big, big block, right? But over the course of all those backers, they have it planned in there with profit. Yeah. I'd probably break down your stretch goals into three areas. You have content-related stretch goals. Those are the ones that where that people use, they literally use a stretch goal as content, right? It goes up as an update. It was already planned. It was kind of already part of that, but it's a content-related stretch goal, and uh, people use those. I'm, I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do. I'm just saying what they, what you have, typically. You content-related updates, or stretch goals, sorry. Uh, you have actual need. I actually need this extra chunk of change in order to release this particular item, and that's a standard stretch goal. And then you have the... Um, well, you have kind of like user recommended type stretch goals. There are sometimes things that come up while you're after you've released the game that you have all these backers come up with these cool ideas, and some of them actually get implemented. And so uh, it's not the, it, the purpose or intention isn't content related. It's more improvement of the game, um, but it doesn't necessarily require extra funds, right? So I, I would break it probably into those three different categories. Um, there's there's kind of a secondary tier to that, which is what cheap-ass games would do. They, they, they take a very interesting approach um, compared to some other publishers. I really like it. Um, but one of the examples they would do, I believe they call them achievements. 
you know, I don't blame the Kickstarter backers for the uh, the stretch goal phenomenon. I blame like Xbox achievements, mm-hmm. right? This need for like, how oh, we've gotten to that. Um, but what they've done is is basically like, hey, you know, because we hit this, we're gonna give you a thank you, and the thank you is a video from the creator doing something silly, right? It's uh, another one happened to be on. Uh, I think it was. Uh, it was one of the big ones. I think it was um, Kittens. It was another one, actually. But it was like, we're going to put Batman in a hot tub. Which one was that? Yeah, uh, I remember that. There was the, you know, there's something <clears throat> random and silly, but it was community engagement related, yeah. right? Yeah. It had very little to do with, hey, we hit uh, this number, and now we're going to give you this item. It's now we're going to you know, release this type of fun content. So again, you have to think of, is this something specifically to improve the game or to engage the community? Because that community engagement is just as vital. And ideally, it's both. Uh, I mean, yeah. like, that, like you just said, the, the stretch roll gives you something to talk about for 30 days where you're making updates and you're trying to get the people that are already backing to tell their friends about it mm-hmm. and to raise the awareness of it and get the buzz going. But, but you don't want to offer things just to have that conversation that you can't or don't want to create and, and provide. Yeah, and don't, don't make the mistake of offering something that you actually didn't plan for and then it does screw you later and makes the whole game now hard to publish. Or in some cases, that's why you have people that have failed games that, you know, that don't ever ship is because they overextended. I always find it really uh, useful to remember that Luke Crane, who is the head of games at Kickstarter, um, who is also the publisher for Burning Wheel uh, role-playing games, um, when he, whenever he does a Kickstarter, and it's not very often, it is very simple. It's, I'm going to produce some Burning Wheel shirts, and if you want, you can have a hood, like a hoodie. Um, it's going to be $15,000, so there are no stretch goals, so that's it. Right? So he's got a very laser-targeted idea about what he, something he wants to produce if he can get enough people interested. And if he doesn't, great, you've given him a gift, he doesn't have to produce it. And if you do, here's what he's going to do, and then it's on its way to you. He's not trying to gild a lily, make it complicated, mostly because he doesn't want that, all that extra work and stress for himself. This is the thing he's doing, and it's done. You can do that as well. And just off the one other kind of quick item, you notice if you look at some of the most successful uh, creators, it's usually the fact that they have done something different that actually makes them successful. You know, some of the some of Scythe, for example, or some of look at you know Gloomhaven. You look at some of these creators that kind of did something for the first time. Um, try to try to just be uniquely you with your with your audience, and it should resonate at least enough to connect with people and, and get them involved. But please connect with them early before you launch. Don't come expect don't come to Kickstarter expecting your audience to flock unless you have an audience that will flock, right? You have to be able to bring friends, family, but also outside of that, you need to have your own audience. Uh, and that's really the, the, what most people that fail on a campaign, it doesn't fund or whatever happens, that usually means they had an insufficient number of people ready to go or excited about it uh, at an early stage. Kickstarter itself does not sell your product for you. The backers, will buy your product and those backers can come from people who are on Kickstarter from friends of Kickstarter or just in general from the the world that you put it out to but uh, but there are hundreds of games on Kickstarter at any given moment and, and they and Kickstarter can only get eyeballs on so many of those at a time so expecting all of your backers to come from internally from uh, Kickstarter is not going to work it's not gonna it is a momentum platform though 
It is very much a moment, momentum platform, and that's how their alg algorithms are built. So the first, that's why everybody just talks about the first two days, the first two days, the first week, um, because if you can do well in those first time frame, it, it does jump you in their algorithms, which does get you more organic eyeballs. And that's what people want. And what maintains you in that, what they call the popularity section on Kickstarter, is uh, one of the aspects. There's a lot of like random or magical things that nobody knows. But the, one of the ones that we do know is number of backers a day. And so if you have a good number of backers on day one, that tends to keep you in a, at least at a higher trend. And of course it drops off, but uh, you, that's one of the things that's gonna influence the, 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 the organic eyeballs that'll come in. You need to pre-market that game and get it out there in front of as many people as you possibly can. Being at places like this, showing your game to people is going to help, but maybe taking it to some conventions, playing it as many places you can, give it a few months. <clears throat> Put money into marketing if you have it. Like really you can go ahead and you can do Facebook ads that are very targeted to very specific areas and pre-market it for up to three months before. And people will begin to see it, but you gotta be prepared. It's gotta basically be like your Kickstarter's ready because you have to have all those visual assets, all of the videos, all that stuff ready ahead of time so people can really get a feel and a sense for what you're doing. But that's all about the pre-marketing campaign and being prepared for a long time. So you have to really give yourself enough time and have a budget to be able to do that um, the only other way is, as I said, boots on the ground, where you're literally going to places, showing your game to as many people as you possibly can, and, and trying to collect their data and say, hey, can I send you an email when my Kickstarter's up and see if you'll come and uh, back my Kickstarter if you're interested? Um, again, that's all part of setting expectations. I see a lot of campaigns, one to 2,000 emails pre-subscribed before launch. I mean, that's going to convert maybe, if you're doing really good, 20% of that list. Mm -hmm. I mean that's doing really good and so you do have to kind of think along those lines how many do I want to back and how many do I need and we, we've talked about there's always a spectrum to everything we're saying because if you're doing an RPG your expectation is to raise two grand you know it's a very different story than if you're if you need 50 grand or you know whatever the numbers right and so uh, but but yeah have a have a list email lists are really kind of what you need I mean it's great to have a, a Facebook page and it, to have a you know, even if you have 50,000 50, likes on a Facebook page, if you had you know, 5,000 emails, that's way more valuable, substantially, just because of the way that you can interact with them, uh, they're going to actually open it. The way that Facebook pages work now, you have to pay to actually access all of your people on your page. Nobody you, sees it, unless it, you pay. If you don't you pay, nobody's gonna percentage. see it. So the email list is really important. It really is. There are a bunch of marketing panels that you can attend here at the show that can talk about this in more detail, but yeah, a mailing list, your own website that is a homepage that you can point people at, uh, those are all ways that you begin to build your community. Uh, you can do it online. Coming from the indie RPG background, I mean, we were all sort of bootstrapping these projects together, and so we were making connections with other people. This guy would do art on my project, and I would help with editing over here, and so everybody's aware of everybody else's games, and you're, you're building that, uh, that group of people who are going to pay attention. We would never have gotten started. Uh, our first game, we printed 100 of them, and we sold it to that group, and then we were like, oh, well, that worked. Let's try again. Let's see if we can get past that group. 
um, you, you can build it slowly or maybe you can get lucky and like get a big exposure maybe somebody on twitch plays your game and then you get a lot of attention but you want to be prepared to capture those eyeballs so that when you go into your kickstarter campaign you can convert them you had a hand. Yeah. I was okay. Just curious if there's a best practice for how much of your total fundraising goal you should have like spoken for. Like, I know that twenty percent is going to of my like email list is going to back me up to say twenty dollar level or whatever. Like, is is there a best practice for kind of like in the first few days the, getting that momentum? The best practice, if that's what you're asking, the yeah, best yeah. practice yeah. is right. getting fully funded in the right. first day, yeah. right? That's yeah. that's the best practice. I don't know if that's a practice, but it's though. not. That, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's a that's a wow! I got really lucky, and thank God, right. you know. So the platforms themselves, and this Indiegogo says this more than Kickstarter because Indiegogo is gonna they're gonna try to pitch you, but they uh, if you get thirty percent funded, something in the algorithms is better for you. It's good to get at least thirty percent funded quickly. Um, I again, these are all like magical numbers that no one really knows, but. Um, but that would be a good practice if you can at least know that you're bringing to the table 30 to 50. It depends though, right? Because if you need a thousand backers to get a 500 to commit is really, really challenging. Most How much money is your game? How many backers do you need for that? Yeah. How much money is your game? A hundred bucks? 300 bucks? Because if it's a $300 game, you don't need as many backers. Oh. So, so you need a lot so of backers. You need high volume. You need a lot of backers for a twenty dollars game. Yeah. This is the, there's a big difference. Spindle if your game is very expensive, you have a big, big. You know, if it's an RPG and you only need say five thousand dollars, and your print run can be whatever you want almost because you could use drive-through uh, printing. That's beautiful. Now you hey, you can you can get two thousand dollars and print fifty games and make a thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, um, this is probably not the only panel I uh, will be in where I feel like this, but there's a there's definitely a spectrum. Mm -hmm. You can definitely be aiming at a smaller end. If you want to, if you're producing an RPG and you can do it print on demand, go to drive through RPG, set up your card game or your books as POD. You can even push the shipping off to that end of things as well. So people are are backing you for the creation of the game and then you're giving them a coupon that they then go get the print version somewhere else. So easy. Um, that's a way, again, to sort of mitigate the risk here. Yeah. But that's not going to put a giant box full of miniatures. And yeah, do you, have, do you have 108 miniatures that are resin fully assembled with 100 scenarios in a giant 12 by 12 cube box that you're going to make? Because if that's the case, you need a lot more money and you need to make at least 1,000 or 1,500 potentially, depending on your printer, so that you can get that quantity created for you at a normal price in China. Yeah, so that's uh, MOQ, minimum order quantity. You got to know that. Say again. Trying to print that in America will rank around. You can't print it in America because there's just no factories to make miniatures in America. Regulations, toxins, and the workload and the minimum wage prevented from being able to be done in America. There are actually a couple of new printing companies in America, believe it or not, that do cards and boards. But plastic products are always sourced from China, no matter what you do. And at that point, you might as well just print it there too. Sadly. easier to make more money with more per right more per individual but I think it, it's a 
combination of things. One of the things that comes with a game that is $150 or $100 typically is a lot more investment up front on content. Not always, but it is much more common because if I have a very simple game that's going out and it's $25, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we all buy games like that here and there right, as we go. But it's, it, you know, when you go to a store to purchase a game, you have to think about this. I'm usually going there to purchase something that's the title itself is worth more. I usually spend more. The $25 purchase or even the $5 purchase are more of like a, you know, a pack of gum kind of a purchase at the point of sale. And so with that type of mindset, you have to look at the amount of work and effort that's going into it. So yeah, I mean, here's kind of a, an example on the other side of the spectrum though. Facade, game, facade games, uh, so Travis and his wife do, uh, they did Tortuga and Salem and Deadwood just barely shipped. All of their games, $25. They sell all of them for 25 bucks, right? But in Travis's case, he's a smart dude, and he prints like thousands, I'm talking some, I think tens of thousands of copies at a time, and so his cost per game is like this, it's nothing. Um, and he does that though because he can sell it. You don't wanna do that if you can't sell it. So it's a really like chicken and egg problem. Um, so the answer is really difficult to, to give a clear one on, but it is very specific to your case. So basically what I'm saying is that if you have a game that's $25, that's okay. It doesn't have to be a $70 game in order to feel like, ah, oh, should, I, should I really just work hard to add more to this to make it worth more? In some cases, yes, but in other cases, like, it's probably okay the way it is. Well, why should I back it on Kickstarter? Why don't I just wait till it comes out in the store? Why do I want your $25 game on Kickstarter? I want the miniatures game with $200 because I'm going to get 100 more extra free miniatures. <gasps> oh, my God. I don't want to miss out on that. I've got to get it. So why do I get your $25 game? That's the, the question you have to answer as the creator so that that backer sees it and says, if I get the $25 game now, I'm going to also get this cool thing that's going to make me feel better about getting it first. I know a lot of Kickstarter creators, very famous ones, say that that's not something you need to worry about. But I say that that's malarkey and you do need to worry about it because as a Kickstarter backer myself, I like free stuff. I like bling, I like shiny things. That's why I back Kickstarters because I want something special. I wanna make this product happen and I want it mine to be special so that I can have a cool, special thing on my shelf that I can show off to my friends and so that when I see it in the store, I said, oh, I got the Kickstarter one of that. If I can't say that, why didn't I just get it later on Cool Stuff Inc. for like 20, 30% less? You see what I'm saying here? That's the mentality of many, many backers. You have to get into that mindset. I'm telling you, the, the uh, again, I have nothing against um, Jamie Stagmeyer and, and all of these amazing pieces of advice that he puts out there. But it does not work for everybody. 100%. It does not work for everybody. It does not work for every Kickstarter campaign. That gigantic college course that's on that website. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to cut it to you. It doesn't work for everybody. You have to find your own way. You have to find a way to catch that backer's eye and to make them want or need to back your Kickstarter because they think it looks so cool and they can't miss out on that cool thing. It really makes a difference. So, so your thoughts on uh, adding so, something extra for Kickstarter only is, is, is worth the effort? I think it's great. 
The Kickstarter exclusive is going to be huge. You've got to be careful with what it is. But it has to be, you have to also pay attention to what that could do for retail opportunities and distribution opportunities because it can impact. There are some retailers that get grumpy that you wouldn't offer that to me and there's things you have to think about. Listen, there's always those 510 backers and those 510 retailers are going to be grumpy. That's the one other big thing you got to know about Kickstarter. There are 10 people who are going to scream at you. There's another 150, 200, 300,000 backers who are fine with what you're doing. And it's okay. And they're not going to say anything. They backed it and they'll see you next year when it comes. Go ahead. Whoever. One other thing that uh, is on my mind in going forward with this is do we start with the 100 quantity, 500 quantity, 1,000 quantity? And in, in board and card games, is there a sweet spot? that gets success in terms of total dollars pledged? Board game has to be a thousand quantity. Is that what you're talking about? Units that you print? No, I'm, uh, my real question is, I, I know it's gonna be less the more you make, um, but my real question is, the ones that are successful on Kickstarter, do they stay in a certain range in terms of uh, successful pledge? Uh, uh, I'm assuming you need a number of like target units. Yeah, I mean, if I have to raise, if I have to raise ten thousand dollars, I'm gonna make me a whole lot less successful for a good board game, or or do I need to get that down to five thousand to be successful, regardless of what? It You're talking about pledge level to? Do you mean funding level? Yeah. How much money you need to get yeah. depends on your game, right? How much well, does it cost to make your game? How much does it cost to make your game? How many copies do you need to make? How much is that going to cost you? How much is it going to cost to ship? How much do you need to make as a person? Do you need to make money? Do you have a job? Is this your job? If it is your job, you might want to try to cut yourself in a little bit. If it's not your job and you're just trying to make the game, all that money goes toward the game. Are you prepared to spend more money? If you don't make enough, like if you just put the funding level at ten grand, and that makes just makes the thousand copies, and let's say oh you got another extra two thousand dollars you have to spend, are you are you okay to do that? Yeah. These there's a lot of questions here that you have to answer. I'm just, I'm just wondering if it was ten thousand, I think a lot less likely to be successful. I think it's hard to say because when you say is that successful, well definitions of success can be I mean, very different. The you're, you're talking about the funding goal. <clears throat> yeah. Are you talking about specifically on the funding goal? I'm talking about what makes what makes it a not a uh, that you get that you get the money. Your objective there is that called funding. The goal? funding goal. Yeah, that's your funding goal. Yeah, you so, always get the money if you hit the level. So yeah, it could be five dollars. I think need to be below a certain amount. Or it's that so the funding goal the funding goal first and foremost should cover you. You should have done the math backwards, right? To say these are all of my costs and I've done the details and it works you up to that goal. There are people that wouldn't fudge the goal or say like, we need a hundred grand, but we're gonna put 30 grand so that we can kind of you know work the system, right? Because as, as soon as you get 100% funded, it's gonna bolster me and I'm gonna get all these other people that are Those really Kickstarters interested. cancel before they finish because they do. They know they don't, they don't have the amount of money that it takes to make the Kickstarter. So I would just say stick to your realistic number or very close to it uh, as the funding goal. I'm going to offer a slight counterpoint to that. That's all absolutely true if you're just trying to get this project up. In our case, we're an ongoing publisher, and we're creating games that we know we can just go sell. Um, so we have funds to publish the game. We can afford to set our goal for the game at a lower level because we have capital. Um, if we don't meet that lower goal, then we know there's not enough interest, and we'll probably cancel the project altogether. But if we exceed that goal, we're going to exceed it well, and that does well for us on that first day traffic. 
Um, so yeah. that's it's a little bit of a gaming the system, but it's and it's not something you want to do if you don't have the security of the funds to make the product. But the anyway. true the true theme of what he's saying, <clears throat> what we're kind of saying collectively, is there's a lot of important value to getting a hundred percent funded. The if you, when you get funded, so the psychology of it doesn't matter if it's Kickstarter or not, or I mean uh, a board game or not. If it's a hundred percent funded, I'm more likely to pledge. Even though I know that I put my money in and it's not actually going to charge if it if it misses the goal, the psychology is I'm more apt to put my money in if I see that it's already made it. And that's the hardest part is getting it to that number, and that's why building a community is so key. Chris, you just hinted at, does, does Kickstarter uh, have a rule against, like, I just looked at a project that's got the same components as mine, their mm. goal to uh, to their full funding goal is five grand. Mm. There's no way they could have got it printed for that amount of money. Right. Um, so I asked them how you get it printed. They said we're using Panda. I have the exact same quote for Panda for the same number yeah. of components. So. The uncontracted uh, honorary rule from Kickstarter to you is do the best that you can to make that product and to deliver it to your customers. Mm -hmm. So that means you still have the ability to fail and not deliver to your customers, but don't ever expect to come back and get money from those people again. And don't try to make a business. Don't change your name and come back because they'll find you. Mm -hmm. Just like Liam Neeson. Yeah. They will find you. And in the same way, that's why people will also self-fund. They'll put in some of their own. They'll put in some of their own yeah. cash to finalize it. It happens, and, and so that that's probably what those guys are doing, yeah. right? And it's their first their first project, so that's marketing for the second, third, and fourth project. Yeah. yeah. The most important thing to know about Kickstarter is you're getting usually close to or the full MSRP on your valued product. If you're going to become a publisher and you're going to start selling to retail, you're going to do 40 to 50 percent of that. For, for retail, basically. Mm -hmm. You sell that to a distributor, usually at 40% of your MSRP. Therefore, at Kickstarter, you should, conceivably speaking, be able to pay for the entire product and have a lot left over to sell to make profit. Or you could be making so many through Kickstarter that you're actually making a profit. There's a lot of psychology there that you have to understand. But the idea is, is that if your Kickstarter is very low and you make enough just to make the product, remember, you're probably gonna have a lot left over because the minimum order quantity is going to be a lot higher than the minimum amount that you need to ship from that product. So let's say you make, you say you get 200 backers and that's enough to print a thousand, right? You have 800 more to sell for free. We'll take one more and then I think we're all wrapped up. Uh, question for Steve, so we've been talking a lot about board games and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. What developments have there been in RPGs? What's what's different in 2018? What's going to be different in 2019? Generally speaking, uh, digital editions are big. That's where most of the sales are happening. Um, and I, I think there's a pullback on what how many products you can expect to get to a retail shelf. So uh, as someone earlier said it, digital is the standard, print is the luxury item. And so in our experience, we typically for all of our games, we'll sell a digital edition and then we'll sell a print plus PDF version. So you get the digital for free with the print version. But we, for Kickstarters, we also take the opportunity to do the things that we wouldn't normally do. We make soft cover books usually. Uh, for Kickstarter, we'll take the opportunity to make a print version of it, like a hardcover version of it as well, because that's much more expensive and the audience is much smaller. So being able to print a lot of those is hard to do, but if we can get enough backers interested, then that's worth the money. Uh, we can set the price accordingly. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, you're seeing a lot of Kickstarters that are, for, for 
RPGs for books that are doing more deluxe editions. Bluebeard's Bride was beautiful, uh, you know. So you can you you have the opportunity with Kickstarter to coming back to stretch goals to do things that are really awesome that you're never going to do again and you're not going to take into distribution. Invisible Sun, for instance, that's a giant box, very heavy. Uh, I think that we're maybe like two or three minutes. Yeah, maybe yeah. three minutes. Uh, you mean as a Kickstarter extra, or you certainly could. You could certainly say, "This is this basic game is going to be where the contract I'm making with you is that you give me money and I will send you a black and white book." And then you can set a stretch goal that is, "Oh, hey, if we get this many backers or this much money, then we will add color art to the game." And that now you're making a new contract, so you know people are going to expect that from you if you so you need to make sure you can do it but yeah that's certainly an option sometimes you have stretch goals that are so maybe you've hit your twenty thousand dollar goal and now you know now as soon as you hit thirty thousand you can release a color edition but it will be a new pledge level you can actually add new pledge levels on your campaign as you go along and that's that's something that you could look at doing once you hit a certain minute. You can and you can add new pledge levels, but you cannot uh, change any existing pledge level that has already been backed. That's a, that's a, an important thing to know. There's a lot of things that until you've done a Kickstarter, you don't realize there what the limitations are. But that's one. But I would say to you, why are you doing black and white? Because it looks cool. Because mm-hmm. it might look. It, is it cheaper though? Is it cheaper to print? It's I don't. Small, I don't necessarily scales, think, I think it is. So. Maybe, but not much, depending on how you're printing it. If you're printing it at Kinkos, maybe. But is the is is the is it offset by the amount that you'll sell? Will you sell way more if it's color than if it's black and white? Or is it trying to be real cool and retro because it's black and white? And that's how you have to think about it. You, you know, why am I doing black and white? Is, is it really that much cheaper? You got to do a lot of quotes. A uh, very specific question: Can you edit your Kickstarter page after it's completely funded? Yes. yes. After it's over, no. No. Well, you um, you can't edit the content of the, the page. Only the but, header. But they do give you um, a new set of tools for displaying what happened on your campaign. Like yeah, you just can, the header. You can add color. Essentially, once the campaign is over, Kickstarter is really good at getting high on the Google search rankings. So when someone searches for your game, that, the Kickstarter page is going to come up first. And so it's a great place. You can go in and edit and add a link that points off to your pre-order or to your web page. You can, you know, there, there's some ability to. But if you made some promise <clears throat> and it's on the Kickstarter, don't try to go take it back later because yeah. it's going to be there forever. <laughs> yeah, and, and while the campaign is live, you also, you're limited. You can't change your pledge level once it has a backer. You cannot change your funding goal. You cannot change the location. But you can turn them off. Live. You can turn them you off. You can turn them off. You can, I think you can change the location, but that's irrelevant. Um, you can also, uh, you can't also change, um, you can change your name as much as you want. There's, there are things that you can kind of endlessly change while it's live, and then it gets locked down. And before it, before the campaign ends, you can continue to update your main page. So you can add in stuff about Content. your stretch goals, or add in new reviews, or whatever. There you go. And I guess it's three o'clock now. So if you guys have other questions, you know, we'll step out. We can chat over here, so other people can come in for the next thing. Sure. Why don't we have to pay to get one of you guys your name? <laughs> <laughs>